Buenas noches y bienvenidos todos a este culto de adoración que tenemos aquí en la Iglesia Cristo de los Pactos esta noche. Dios nos ha bendecido mucho en tantas maneras, específicamente en la Palabra de Dios que tenemos ante de nosotros esta noche. Nosotros vamos a leer, escuchar y oramos de lo cual vamos a entender y aplicar. Now, perhaps you speak Spanish, or perhaps you felt a little bit like those at the Tower of Babel uh, one day in the history of the world. Um, there are certainly languages all around us. Uh, we can sit at this text tonight, Genesis chapter 11, and uh, certainly discuss linguistics. The fact that we began with one language, and yet at this moment in time, a diversity of languages began at the cause of the Lord, by the hand of the Lord, for a particular reason. And yet, in this evening, I believe that the Lord is calling us to look at something apart from linguistics and more centered upon uh, the sins of the people of Babel. So the challenge this evening is for us to resist the urge, to resist the urge to live according to the underlying sinful desires that were at work in those at the Tower of Babel. You've probably heard it said, the, the old advertisement from Sprite, quench your thirst, or the thirst quencher. And this evening, we're actually trying to do the opposite, speaking of resisting that thirst, resisting the urge to live according to the flesh, according to that which comes naturally to us. And so the Lord is calling us this evening to, to look at this passage and to learn how to resist, to resist that which comes naturally to us. So would you turn to Genesis 11 and to this passage, the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, of the entire earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth." is the word of the Lord. Now, before we look this evening at those underlying sins and even the, the results, the things that are longer trajectory into human history, the implications of what happens here at this event at the Tower of Babel, let's first get a little context. Genesis 11 falls right after Genesis chapter 10. If you're flipping and looking at Genesis 10, this is the nations, the table of nations after descending from Noah. This is following the flood account and even the creation of the world. And so in Genesis 10, we are looking at many generations of humanity descending from the three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
There's long names. There's particular regions that they branch off to. And for many reasons throughout church history, this has been somewhat of a troubling passage. What is the connection between Genesis 10 and Genesis 12? Because if you look at Genesis 10, verse 5, it begins by saying, or in verse 5, it says, from these, it lists the sons of Japheth, from these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. And in verse 20 of chapter 10, it says, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And then even uh, the culminating verse of that chapter, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So chapter 11, verse 1, seems kind of uh, unique in that it's following the verse saying, the nations have spread, and it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and they were all together. They were one people. So how does language, uh, Genesis 11 fit into G- Genesis 10? Uh, John Currid, a, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Charlotte, and a pastor in our presbytery, said the Tower of Babel sequence is explanatory. It tells the reader why and how the nations were developed. Genesis 11, 1 through 9, is subservient to the main theme of the section which begins at chapter 10, being the dispersion of the people throughout all of the earth. And he says, highlights secondly, the structure of chapters 10 and 11 fits into a larger literary piece. Here we see God making a multitude out of one people, but in the following chapters, 12 through 50, we see God choosing one out of the multitude of the nations, that being Abraham and his lineage. So a greater picture in the And the book of Genesis is occurring here, a transition. God is trying to highlight the spread of people throughout the world. And so Genesis 11, like John uh, MacArthur mentions, is a description of how they were separated. It's embedded somewhere in the midst of Genesis chapter 10 as an explanatory thing. So following the flood and the multiplication of the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, a large group of descendants of Ham migrated to this valley in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. It's located between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Regarding this passage in Genesis 11, the ESV commentary says this episode is significantly more important than its length suggests, only being nine verses. It presents a unified humanity using all its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God had intended when he created the world. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy, and the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. And so tonight, as we look at what's going on in the hearts of these men, what's their rally cry, I think our encouragement from the Lord is to resist the urge to do the same, to resist the urge to live according to these root sins. It's certainly pervasive in the people of Babel, and I think it's certainly capable of being pervasive in our city and within ourselves. So let us resist the urge. Let's look at these root sins, particularly in verses 3 and 4. In verse 3, and they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, come, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's some underlying sins here. And the first sin 
John Piper particularly points this out, but many commentaries would speak of this, is the love of praise, the love of human praise. For they say here, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. This phrase here, or the word, the Hebrew term is shem, for name. And in this context, it signifies fame, reputation, and a perpetual memorial. Rather than than putting your name on an epitaph, these people would rather leave uh, a name for themselves, created from their own selfish ambition and for their own glory. And so they say, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They found out that they were really skilled at making bricks. In fact, John Curd, speaking of this, says this was a land that was perfect in terms of the dirt and the uh, sulfur pots that are all around that land in the Valley of Shiner. And so it was a perfect situation for them to use what was around them, their natural resources, and to be able to develop this. And that's what they did. They were essentially telling the nations, let us make a name for ourselves by Come, look at our bricks, look at our buildings, look at our bricks last longer and are made uh, with durability. And so pride, fame, and identity are all connected here. If you look back in chapter 10, in Genesis 10, verse 8, looking at those genealogies, again, sometimes we question why should we read genealogies? Well, they actually inform us, even this particular man, Nimrod, informs us here of Genesis 11. Looking in verse 8 of chapter 10, Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Eric, Akkad, Kalne, and the land of Shinar. And from that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. This man Nimrod had made a name for himself. He was known, there, there were slogans about him, like a mighty hunter before the Lord. People knew of Nimrod, and he had done, used his skills, used his giftings to build for himself a name. And it says here that among the cities of his kingdom was Babel. So Nimrod has had a massive influence upon this city. In fact, it's possible that even he is the one speaking in verse 3 and 4, rallying the people of Babel together to do this work. When he says, come, let us build for ourselves. Come, come, let us make bricks. This is Nimrod. He's got legendary status. He's made a name for himself. And this phrase, a mighty hunter before the Lord, the phrase before the Lord is, uh, is in particular a hostile term. Not just before God, God seeing what Nimrod's doing, but Nimrod flaunting what he does before the Lord in arrogance. So there's a hostility towards what Nimrod was doing in verses 8 through 10. And speaking of him, his skill, his power in the face of God. He set himself against God and was opposing him. Even the name Nimrod means let us rebel. So his name speaks of the rebellion against the Lord. And he is the influencer in this region. People have, uh, are flying the flags of Nimrod. It's like us speaking of uh, of Serena Williams or Daniel Boone or Kobe Bryant, people that you would know immediately and think, okay, that person's uh, known for their craft. They're known. And this man, Nimrod, was in the same way. So he's the leader of the people. He has helped them to accomplish an, an engineering marvel with these bricks and these towers. 
ingenuity is an amazing thing. I love even uh, last night reading a book to my son, a two-year-old, got it at the, uh, the, the local library, and it's a book about the Golden Gate Bridge and the history of the Golden Gate Bridge. And if you've ever gone across the Golden Gate Bridge, it's an impressive mar- modern marvel, uh, 1.7 miles long. Uh, many men lost their lives building the bridge, painting the bridge, developing it, engineering, all of that. And particularly because of the location where it is with the currents and the depth of the water below it. We have many modern marvels in our days. And yet what's going on here is they are making what they have done their identity. Let us make a name for ourselves, they say. Now to make a name for yourself means that you are either rejecting an identity already given to you, a name already given to you. Or you don't believe that there has been an identity given And yet, Genesis makes it clear that when God made man, he made him in his image. In Genesis 1.26, God has given all of humanity an identity, that we are image bearers of him, to glorify him. Even in a few minutes, when we speak of the cultural mandate, that God gave us a commission, a mission to accomplish. But he has given us an identity, an identity to live in. Even as Christians redeemed from the fall, we have have a, a new identity as, as being reborn Christians, sinners saved by grace. Are we living within these identities? Do we, do we know the identity that God has given to us? Or are we trying to make a name for ourselves? John Oliver, uh, Dr. John Oliver preached here a number of years ago as a sermon that was very influential to me. Uh, he preached on Philippians 2 in a morning service, continually compelling us to have this mind about us that was in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ Jesus. And that is to do nothing from selfish ambition or vacancy, not for our own name, but for the name of Christ. I was uh, playing basketball at the local YMCA uh, this week. And if you've ever participated in, in sports on a, on a you know, not a professional level by any mean, we're playing in the YMCA, tensions can still be really high and, and pride can run rampant. And uh, 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 there were, it broke out a fight. It started with tensions, uh, words flying. Then it got physically uh, engaged, these two guys playing basketball, pick up basketball in the Y. And it just made me think, man, all for the greatness of our own name uh, at the YMCA, right, with nobody watching, <laughs> nobody even waiting for the next game, you know. Uh, offended when our name or our reputation get wrapped up. We, we want people to recognize greatness in us. And so like John Oliver was preaching and like certainly we have learned from Christ Jesus, we're not to do it from selfish ambition or to make our names great. When This is, reminds me, even the work at Babel reminds me of William Shakespeare's play, Much Ado About Nothing. That's really the summary of our work, of our inventions, of the labor that we do. It's not ultimately great. The Lord is great. So when we talk about our own work, when we talk about our own name, it's really much I do about nothing. How do you seek for your name to be great? Perhaps it's through social media or through your networking, uh, at the office, perhaps among your peers, your friends, and what we speak of about ourselves and the ways we don't speak about ourselves in honesty, about the truths of our failures and our shortcomings. We love to talk about our accomplishments and to be recognized for them and to create our own identity. Seek the City this year, we, we focused on uh, Psalm 115.1 as the theme verse. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. 
And that's what we need to be reminded of. That was a, a cardinal sin here. That was a, a, an underlying sin in the people of Babel. They wanted to make a name for themselves and build a tower to heaven to rival God, a tower that would be recognizable from any distance. So they would be known as the people to be feared, a people that are intelligent, a people that know what they're doing. We need to live within the identity of being an image bearer. So that is, is the first sin, and I think a, a more pervasive sin, a living for your own name for the praise of others. There's also a sin here that we see, and that is the love of security. He said, come, let us build ourselves a city. Let us build ourselves a city. Now, this is significant. They've been sojourning. They are a migratory people from the east. They're, they are trying to survive in a, in a difficult area to live, and that's why they settled in the Valley of Shiner. And yet they love security. They desire to live in a city, a walled city that could be fortified and protected. They wanted to make alliances with the, whole, the people of the city. That through social unity, that through their own ingenuity, their technology that they had developed, even their motto, their unification around this motto, look what we're doing for ourselves, a name for ourselves. They were trusting in themselves and in one another. And so rather than obedience to God, which we're going to see in a moment from the cultural mandate that we are to spread out, they, rather than obedience with a risk, they opted for disobedience and the appearance of safety in themselves and in their city. And I think this is a warning for us who love security. When our zeal for security overcomes our zeal for obedience, we've probably created an idol and our hearts have turned aside from the living God. Rather than trusting in him or trusting in what we can do to make ourselves secure and safe, rather we should be first thinking of the kingdom and what God has called us to, obedience to his commands and then rest in him. Rest in his promises, rest in his providence. So we see the, the love of praise in his name, the love of security. And really, this love of security is really tied to a, the third underlying sin, and that is resistance. Resistance to the will of God. I told you to resist the urge. Well, this is a resistance to the will of God, a refusal, a defiance, repelling what God has sent, a defying his commands. They say we want to build a tower with its top in the heavens. We want to rival the very gates of heaven. In fact, that's, uh, that is what Babel means in two senses. It means to confuse, but it also means the gate of God, which is kind of a mockery that they would call themselves Babel then because they failed miserably to build this tower to rival God. And yet, that is what they are doing when they look at this tower they are, their motto is to build a name for themselves, to, to rival God with their ambition, with their defiance. We see in, uh, in fact, I want you to turn to Genesis 128. We just referred to 126 with the God making us in his image. In 128, there is what's the first occasion being given of the cultural mandate. This is what's going on in the backstory behind Genesis 11. In 128, it says, these are the first words of God to mankind. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God had just created Adam, and he commissions him with this 
mission, the cultural mandate to fill the earth and subdue it by having children, by being fruitful, multiplying, but then filling the earth and subduing it, having dominion over all these spheres of God's creation. We are made in his image, which means that we are to reflect him, reflect his character, and in some senses, reflect the roles that he performs. God ultimately has dominion over all things, and he's called human beings to exercise dominion underneath his authority. We have authority, but are also under authority. And that is what God said to the first human being representative, Adam. After the flood in Genesis 9, right when they get off of the ark, in verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Remember, this is kind of a a recreation story where it's just a few people alive on the earth. God says to Noah, it says, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to him, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats the cultural mandate that is still moving forward. Despite the flood, this mandate still has effect. And so, a few chapters later, a few generations later, the Tower of Babel, the people of Babel are saying, let us build a city that is in direct defiance, direct resistance to the will of God that has been expressed to humanity to fill the earth and subdue it, to exercise dominion across the earth. For the love of security, they are saying we, we would rather trust a walled city than trust that God would protect us as we go to obey him. So they are defying the cultural mandate. It's a, dangerous pl- it's a dangerous place to be when we are acting in defiance towards our creator and the judge of all the earth. I think that each of us, if we're honest with ourselves, can sense rebellion within ourselves, rebellion within our heart. It's easy to point out in others. As a parent, I can easily identify it now, and it's, uh, it irks me. I, I'm grateful for the patience of my parents and for all of you who are parents and grandparents who have endured much parenting of rebellion, and yet how often we rebel against God. We are to exercise submission. And I think there's multiple things that we could do to, to resist that resistance to the will of God, right? How do we s- simply submit to God and to grow in the practice of, of submitting? I think one great thing certainly is prayer. For in prayer, it is both an act and a posture, Right? Our knees are bent. Our sub- we are submitting ourselves to the will of the Father. We're praying, your will be done. And I think a, a good um, barometer of, leveling, of measuring our submissiveness is to ask yourself, how often do you pray? Because it's a remedy to pride, and it is a remedy to a rebellious spirit. So prayer. I think also s- sitting under the word of God, having a daily reminder that we need the truth, that we... We aren't just full of the truth already. We don't see all things clearly, but we have much to learn. So by sitting under the word of God, we are are calling ourselves to submit to it. And we are being taught. I think lastly, one other point is to serve him. We We can practice submission by serving him, seeking out ways to serve Christ's kingdom rather than our bank account and rather than our name. Getting involved in the ministries of this church Serving through evangelism, through caring for your neighbors, doing things for the kingdom of God, all those quench rebellion within us. And so the love of praise, the love of security, the rebelliousness within us to the will of God, this resistance, 
And so our charge is to resist the urge to live by these common temptations, these underlying sins, and rather to live as we are able, as far as we are able, in the image of God, becoming Christ-like in our attitudes, our behaviors, our beliefs, and our convictions. So those are the underlying sins. What, what happens as a result of the, this event at the Tower of Babel? What, can, what else do we see here that we can learn from that might give us hope, that might call us to prayer? I think there are multiple results and some that are very long-ranging. You see immediately that as they build, they are, they are unifying, right, people. Come, let us, come, let us do this and that. What does God do in verse 5? And the Lord came down to see the tower which the children of man had built. First of all, I hope you notice the irony here. They, they were building a tower to rival heaven, and God had to come all the way down to earth to see it. Not that God's this isn't saying anything about God's omniscience. This is God, the, the mockery language, the irony of the fact that their efforts were fa- falling far short. God comes down, and he comes down to see it. In fact, even the language of verse 7, the fact that, that uh, it's recorded that God said, come, let us, that same rallying cry is another irony that Moses is trying to clarify for us the, the, the audacity of these people. And so God comes down and he makes multiple decisions, does multiple things. First, he confuses the languages. This is helpful for us in, uh, in understanding linguistics to some degree. There are many theories of linguistics. How did language come about? In fact, as a foreign language major myself in college, I had to take many classes in linguistics. And it's intriguing to come back to the beginning of it all, knowing that it is the truth that Genesis 11, that God had a a very uh, instrumental hand, obviously, in the dividing out of the languages and the various languages and dialects that we have all throughout this world. Not only languages, but cultures and people groups. And so, the languages are confused. The languages are confused. Now, to what degree is this God simply responding to sin? And how much of this was in God's providence all along? Well, certainly, we believe that God knew from the beginning that he was going to have a multitude of languages in this world. God is not simply a reactionary God. But knowing all things, being able to see even into the future, being able to even use sin sinlessly, being able to control all things for the purposes of his, for, for his purposes, uh, God even instrumented this, the division of languages, which we would say is such an obstacle in many ways. It could be an obstacle in evangelism. It could be an obstacle in unifying the world. And yet God has incredible purposes through it. In part, God can uh, get greater glory through the multitude of languages. We've even read already from Revelation chapter five, it was in your bulletin, uh, Pastor Lawrence read it just a few moments ago. I want you to flip there, or if you have your bulletin, you can even just look at that. In Revelation five, notice this, this is the, the climax of all things, the end of, towards the end of the world, the worship that the church is giving to the Lord. And in Revelation five, six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, 
which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God is getting great glory by the gospel triumphing over the diversity of languages, over the difficulties, the obstacles that are created by divisions of culture, language, people groups. God is getting great glory, and we see that he is making one people out of the multitude of nations and languages. This certainly gives us great ambition, great desire to invest in evangelism and the works of church planning to unreached people groups. You may have noticed a few weeks ago there was a in fact, some of it's been murky because, because of the resources. Hard to know exactly who this man was, but a man named John Allen Chow, who was moving to the North Sentinel Island and uh, was particularly approaching an Aborigine people and was killed. And uh, the, the quote that was on his, it must have been either Instagram or Facebook, some form was saying, I just have, I might be crazy, but I have a burden to take the gospel to these people. And you see those kind of endeavors, and, and it's reminding us that in the end, God is drawing all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to himself. The gospel is triumphing. It's overcoming even the obstacles in world evangelization. It's amazing. And another note, the division of languages, the confusion of languages is actually helping to hinder evil, to hinder evil. Like having a common language can unify, uh, there can bring clarity, togetherness. That can be a good thing and as, as the gospel goes forth. It can also be a destructive thing as the forces of evil can unify and rally against the church. I think in many ways, John Piper in, in his sermon on this passage was speaking of the mind of God, the incredible mind of God, that even through the division of languages where rather than having a monolithic nation, to rival the church. There are a multitude of nations that fear each other and do not understand each other. So rather than attacking the church as one common enemy, they're divided among themselves. It's amazing that God in his providence could even sustain the longevity of the church on this earth by hindering evil, by causing disunity in, in among the forces of evil. We even see this here in, in uh, uh the, the, the language of, uh, of evil forces coming together, like you see it in Proverbs as you read throughout the chapters, of all the scheming that takes place, lying in wait to ambush an unexpecting traveler, those sorts of things, and how evil can be uh, pulled together uh, through the common language. And so God, by restraining wickedness, uh, by, by dividing these languages, has restrained wickedness and and uh, even restrains some levels of disobedience. It's amazing. So God confuses the languages. God disperses the people, it says in verse nine. It says in, in, uh, in verse nine of chapter 11. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. God was accomplishing his will, the cultural mandate, even despite the unwillingness of the people. He was going to cause them to spread out by confusing their languages and, and dispersing them throughout. And so we see the gospel triumphs. We see, even though some, in some senses there are obstacles for good, obstacles in world evangelization, 
God gets even greater glory as people from all, all languages come together to worship him. One of the greatest experiences of my life was on my first mission trip internationally, and it was in the uh, hinterland of Peru. Uh, it was in Yungay was the name of the town, and we were some of the, to my knowledge, some of the first Americans that had been in this particular village. And uh, what, a, what an incredible experience that was. In some senses, being treated as a celebrity just for being tall, right, and, uh, uh, and speaking English. And yet, being around the people working with them for, for days on a common project for the good of, of abandoned street boys, um, we had this experience on the last day, is the 10th day of our trip, and we were eating food with one another, all the workers that spoke Quechua and Spanish, and then all of us as well, just commonly eating, eating together at the, at the end of our last day's labor. And uh, someone in our, on our team just started singing Amazing Grace in English and while we were going through the line. And Amazing Grace started being sung in Spanish and then in Quechua. And it was literally all of us singing about the, the grace and the glory of God with multiple languages. And it was one of those moving moments to teach us, to teach me, that God is so much bigger than just a God of the English-speaking people or Americans, but is a God of the nations and is drawing people from every nation to himself. It's an amazing thing when we see these developments and see the triumph of the gospel and even see the, the errors of a prior generation, these sins that they harbor in their heart. I think the encouragement for us tonight is to resist the urge to live according to our flesh, to live according to these things, the love of praise, the love of security, this rebellious spirit that we can oftentimes have towards the Lord. Instead, to see and look forward with the triumph of the gospel and to be difference makers, image bearers on this earth as long as the Lord provides. Let's pray. Our great God, you have given us an amazing, weighty opportunity as your creatures. Though we are just creatures, you have made us in the image of God to reflect your image, to live out our roles, even as they, in some senses, reflect yours. And by doing so, bring you glory. I pray, Father, that you would cause within us a lack of resistance. Help us to, to, to lean in, to desire the things that you've commanded us and mandated for us to do. I pray, Father, that you would free us from the love of praise and of making our own names great. And I pray, Father, that you would free us to live for obedience more than our own security. Help us to learn the lesson from Genesis 11. And I pray, Father, that you would get great glory even as we invest in the evangelization of the nations, even as we look towards your hand of providence, fulfilling that, that every nation will be reached with the gospel, every tribe and language. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be caught up in that vision and even bow the knee uh, to, to, to praise and worship you as we see done in Revelation 5. God, would you get glory from our lives and from this church as we follow you in obedience. In Christ we pray, amen.